Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Good morning. All right, here we are together. What a joy. We are continuing in our series of encounters or encountering Jesus, and today I have the privilege and the joy of opening up God's Word to Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14, to a parable that will be not unfamiliar to you, but in fact, you may know very, very well. But before we say that, as you're finding your way, uh, I just want to let you know we do have the, the honor of witnessing two baptisms at the end of our service today. Two young ladies in our church who profess Christ as their Lord and Savior uh, came to me, I don't know, it's been maybe some, some months now, and just said that they really felt like God's Word had spoken to them very clearly and that they had placed their faith in Christ and that they needed to be baptized. And so today, we get to see that happen, and I'm so excited to be a part of it and also for us to get to witness this together. So what a joy. It turned out to be a great day after all. Smile, get chipper, get happy. You can even say amen at some point if you want to. I'm not that person, but you should be because I'm preaching today, and I need you. I need you. But seriously, what, what a joy it is to be here today. Now, I want to do something. I want you to finish this sentence. Mirror, mirror on the wall, who is the fairest one of all? We're off to a really great start, by the way. This is extremely discouraging. It was the one thing I had in my notes that was a sure thing. And here we are. Okay. So this is obviously from Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, that famous scene where the queen goes to the magic mirror and she asks the mirror, who is the fairest one of all? And the mirror, the slave in the mirror, responds to her and says, there is one fairer than thee. And and he says a bunch of stuff uh, that's beautifully written. And essentially she realizes, oh my goodness, this is Snow White. But here's the point I want to make. When she goes to the mirror, she's not really asking a question. I mean, even when you're really, really young, you realize that she's not going with the question. She's going actually to have her own truth validated. That's what's happening. And and this moment when she finds out that it's actually Snow White that's the fairest one of all and not her, her pride will not allow her to accept this as true. And so she does what she does. I won't spoil the movie just in case you've never seen it. (laughs) But here's the point. The Bible has some hard things to say to us. And at times the Bible even has things to say to us and about us that we may not believe about ourselves. But, But here's the question. Are we willing to let the Bible expose us? Are we willing to come to the Bible not to be validated in what we already know to be true about ourselves? Or are we willing to come to God's Word and let let it expose what may actually be true that we may not even know about ourselves? That's the question. And the question is because of what we're about to read. In Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14, here... 
the Bible tells us this. He also, speaking of Jesus, told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. This is the word of the Lord. Well, let's pray, and then we will dig in together. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for gathering us in this place on this day. And Lord, because you are sovereign and you are providential over all things, we know that this day is not a mistake. This place, us being here, is not a mistake. You have us here for a reason. You have given us this very word for a reason. And so we pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear that you would make us a humble people, that we would hear what you have to say to us that in, in reality will only lead to us being more faithful and more like Christ. So Father, would you do this work in us today through your word? And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so the challenging part of this text is not at all the interpretation of the text. It is so very clear, just even as you're looking at the structure of this, that Jesus, as he's speaking, he has a main audience, that is, he's speaking to a crowd where there are some who consider themselves or trust in their righteousness. And then he gives us kind of the setting of the story itself where there's this Pharisee who is righteous in his own right. And he goes into the temple to pray and he prays all these things. And then there's this tax collector who just can't even bring it upon himself to get very close to the Holy of Holies to pray. And so he hangs his head and he prays. But we also see that there's a clear purpose for this. Jesus ultimately wants them to know that those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Okay, so if that's not the challenging part, then what, what is the challenging part here? Well, I think the, the challenging part of this text is seeing that Jesus' intent in giving us this parable is actually to expose our hearts too. He's not just giving us a story about two random people that we're to read and be like, wow, that was, that was a really great story. It had its sad moments, but it had its exciting moments. No, it's not just a movie, as if we're supposed to just casually sit back and watch this thing unfold. The, the most challenging part of this story is that when we really begin to look at it and begin to look at our own hearts, we're actually supposed to find ourselves in one of these two men. Now, that, that makes things a little bit more interesting, doesn't it? If we're not allowed to just read about these two men and just kind of be like, wow, man, I'm so glad that I came into church today. So let's look at it. Two points. The first is this, Jesus exposes two hearts. Okay, so there are several things in this text that differentiate these two men. There's uh, the way they come in, the way they stand, the things they pray, the things that are said about them. There, there's a lot of different things happening that we could go through and we could nitpick every single one of these things to draw the most amount of contrast that we could possibly draw, right? We could say, well, the Pharisee did this and he was wearing sandals, but the tag, I mean, it just, it doesn't, it doesn't matter, right? 
There's one issue here that we need to see. It, It all boils down to one thing, and that is these two men's posture before God. Right? It's in their posture that we really see what's going on here in this parable, what we're supposed to see for ourselves. And it's this, that as we look at these men and the way they approach God and stand before God, they have two radically different views of God. And because they have two radically different views of God, they have two radically different views of themselves. So the first is this, the tax collector, and his posture is pretty simple. Uh, he comes before the Lord, the, the holy God, as a, a sinner. As we read this story, we see that he comes to the temple, he comes to pray, seeing himself in light of God. Now, we'll talk about that. The whole second point is all about that, so we'll skip that for now. But that's, that's what I want you to see. His posture is very simple. There's not a lot going on there, really, on the surface. But then the, the Pharisee's posture, it isn't as simple. Right, the first thing that we need to see here is uh, it's actually something really important, and, and I want to make sure that we understand this because it will help us as we examine ourselves too. But what we need to realize is that the text doesn't tell us that the Pharisee believes that he made himself righteous, only that he was righteous. Now, why do we say that? Because I would assume that this Pharisee most likely believes in God. He believes in the sovereignty of God. He believes God is the God of Israel. He's, he's a God-type person. He lives his life in a way that exudes belief in God. And so if that is true, then he knows all of the things that the Old Testament would have to say about God, and I'm sure he would be on board with all of them. So it doesn't say that he made himself righteous. That is, that he believes that there is no God or that he himself is God, it says that he believes that he was righteous, that he believes in his righteousness. That's really important. Because what we understand about the Pharisee is that his problem is not a refusal of God, it's that he does not believe he needs God. That's the problem with the Pharisee. As we look at his prayer, what we end up seeing is that he comes to God to pray and he offers everything and he asks for nothing. I mean, think about that for just a moment. Some of us, I believe, would probably say, well, maybe I come to God and ask way too much and don't offer anything. Well, I think maybe sometimes for us, the reason we're tempted to go and to ask God for things even if maybe we seem like we ask more than we actually praise or any other thing, is because intrinsically when you come to God to pray, you realize you're talking to the one who has everything and needs nothing and can give you the things that you do not have. Well, for the Pharisee, he completely misunderstands who God is. We might even say that he doesn't actually know God because he offers everything. He essentially, you can look at verse 11 and you could sum up, if I was to make my own uh, version of the Bible, the message 2.0, I would probably rewrite verse 11 like this, thank God I'm me. Like you can sum it up just like that. And here's the issue. As we look at the Pharisee, as the Pharisee looks at God, and as the tax collector looks at God, we see the tax collector looking at himself in light of God, and we see the Pharisee looking at God in light of himself. 
the Pharisee has completely lost sight of his own personal sinfulness. He, he has forgotten that he is a sinner in need of something. That, that he would need saved from something. That he would need someone to do something for him if he was to come before this good and holy God. And yet, for whatever reason, that has been put out of his mind. Here's what I wanted to do. Um, I, I wanted to come up with a really great illustration to be able to uh, convince every single one of us that we are prideful and at times self-righteous. I, honestly, I really thought about it. I was like, what could be the thing that would be kind of like Nathan, the prophet Nathan, coming to David where you're like, well, there's this, there's this man with this lamb and the king takes his lamb and slaughters it and David's like enraged and Nathan just goes, the man is you. I wanted to do that to you. I really did. Um, bad. But only because I felt it myself. Like, I, I wanted you to be able to feel what I felt when I was studying this. And just seeing my, my own heart and the tendencies of my own heart being displayed in the Pharisee. The, the, the one that I don't want to have to identify with in this story. And so I wanted to be like, aha, I gotcha. And then you're like, you got us. <laughs> because if I were to say, hey, who thinks they're self-righteous? We're all like, not me, <laughs> right? Because we're not probably going to confess to that. To, to be self-righteous is to be self-righteous. To be prideful is to be prideful. But I did have a good story, and it involved the band of brothers, and you'll never hear it. But what I want to do instead is I want to ask God, and I want you to ask God to, in this moment, and if this sounds silly to you, that's, that's fine, but I want, I want us to ask God to expose our hearts, to, to take this text and to, to lay our heart out on the table and to expose the things that need to be exposed to show us the things that need to be shown to us. Maybe the things that we have put in the back of our minds or we have hidden in a dark closet somewhere that we come to this and we're like, ah, yeah, I just really don't struggle with this. Well, how can we know if we never let the Word of God actually tell us what is true about us? Well, it's the same problem that the queen had. She came asking a question that she did not really want to know the answer to. Let's not be that type of person when we come to God's Word. Let's lay it all bare. Let's let God's word, let's let God expose what is really in our hearts. Why do we need to do that? Why is that so important? Why is that not actually a silly thing for you to really pray right now? And I think it's because of this. It's, it's what I saw when I was reading and studying, and it, I, I think it's what we all see. When I say this, you're going to be like, oh my goodness, you're actually right. Why, why do we need to do this? Because the Pharisee shows us that it's possible for a person to acknowledge God, to check all of the right boxes, and yet not see their need for the grace of God. We can come into this place. We can do all of the right things. We can say all of the right things. We can gather the right people around us. We can stand up. We can clap. We can raise our hands. We can leave we can, we can go and we can meditate and we can open God's word. We can even pray to him in his name. We can do all of these things 
We can do all the stuff we're supposed to do. We can have the amount of religious piety that we need and yet not know our need for the grace of God. That's what bothers me when I read this text. It's not the concern that I really believe that I am self-righteous or that I'm more prideful than anyone else. It's that I can get into this groove of doing all of the right things, including coming into here, including standing up and preaching from God's word, and yet miss that I need God's grace because I am a sinner. Seriously, think about it for just a moment. I mean, we can nitpick the Pharisee's prayer, but when you look at all of the varying aspects of his prayer, yeah, he could tweak some words, but in reality, if he's thanking God, if he would have just said something slightly different, this would have been an acceptable prayer. Thank you, God, for not letting me slip into what an extortioner does. Oh, Thank you, God, that you have given me the zeal and the desire to tithe of everything that I have. Thank you that you have given me this desire to fast even more than the law requires of me because I want to dedicate my entire life to you. See, his his prayer is not far off. And that's what concerns me. Is that we can be this close, this close to God. And and to believing that we know Him and that we are right with Him and that our life is actually evidence of that and yet miss the fact that we are in great, great need. I think Jesus' question really can be summed up like this when we read this parable. What will justify your life before God? What will justify your life before God? I mean, think about it for just a moment. When you stand before God on the day of judgment, are you going to stand and will you be content to say, God, I know that you gave me righteousness. I took that righteousness. I made it my own. I lived that righteousness. I loved that righteousness. That righteousness drove me. It was the very fabric of my being. It consumed me. It was every thought that I had was the righteousness, and I thank you for it, God. Oh, sovereign, holy, great, mighty God, thank you for the righteousness that is lived through me that has been given by you. Listen, That sounds okay. That sounds okay. And I I think at some level, all of those things should be true about us. But if we ever convince ourselves that when we get to heaven, we can stand before God and say that, uh, then we are mistaken. Here's what I think Jesus really wants us to know from this parable. The thing that will help us fight self-righteousness, the thing that will help us to put off the pride of seeing how good of a Christian we are, or even kind of the, the false humility of seeing how pitiful of a Christian we are. The thing that balances both of those things is this, that when we get to heaven, we cannot just enjoy the righteousness that has been given and lived through us. We must say, thank you, God, that alone Christ is my righteousness. That's the point here. There's there's one thing that we're supposed to see, that Christ is our righteousness, that, that He is our standing, that He is our justification before a holy God. I was I was actually thinking, and it's weird, just I don't know, just hear me out. It's just weird. I don't know. When you're doing sermon prep and you're in your office with the door shut, 
it's I don't even want to know what happens in Brad's office during the week because you just go to weird places. One of those places I went was to the judgment seat. And I thought, if, if I was here, what would I say? What would I say, honestly? And, and I'm, I'm thinking, as I'm standing there, God, please, please let Christ's righteousness be enough. Let it satisfy you. Because the righteousness that you have given me through Jesus, I have made a mockery of it. Many times in my life, I have lived as if I was not righteous. Many times I have taken this righteousness and I have falsely claimed it as my own. Many times I have taken this righteousness and I have lived it in a way that exalted it over other people because they are just not as good as living out righteousness as I am. I'm a sinner. I am in my own right not righteous. So God, please let Christ's righteousness be enough. Let this be the thing upon which I stand or which I fall. Because if it is up to me, I fall. And so I place my hope, my trust, my belief in the righteousness that is Christ and what he has done, not my own. Uh, Listen, I, I just, I want you to know that we will never be able to live up to the standard of Christ's righteousness on our own. If it is not his righteousness that God sees when he looks at us, we are doomed. You you do realize, just a a bit of biblical theology very fast. I'm trying to move quickly uh, because we have these these ladies being baptized and I want to revel in that. But just a a bit of biblical theology. I want you to understand that in Genesis 1 and 2, before Genesis chapter 3, the fall into sin, the standard for God's people was perfection. To live with him and to obey him and to do everything that he commanded for them. Well, I think sometimes we feel like because of Genesis chapter 3, that has somehow changed. That the standard is now lower because we are sinners. But the reality is, is from the law all the way into 1 Peter in the New Testament, the standard is still to be perfect and holy as your God is perfect and holy. Do you feel like you can live up to that standard? I don't. I don't. And so I want to get to heaven And I want to say, let Christ's righteousness be enough. You've seen my life. You've seen my failures. Would you in me please see Jesus? That's what the Pharisee is teaching us. That we can come. We can do all of the right things. We could check all of the right boxes, but we can love the wrong thing. And we can completely miss the fact that we are in need of what God has to offer and and not anything special in his eyes as if we can come and give him a few good deeds and he will be pleased in them. Friends, the standard is too high. And the only one who has ever been able to live up to that standard is the man Jesus Christ. The one who did what God commanded, lived a perfect, sinless life, and then gave his life up on a cross 
and he rose three days later so that you and I could place our faith in him and someday stand before God as objects of Christ's righteousness, not objects of our own. But the second point is this. Jesus praises the posture of humility. Okay, so what is it that the tax collector saw that caused him such anguish? Because he does. I mean, think about it. For just I, Like, seriously, the posture of these two men coming in, the Pharisees strolling up to the front and just standing away from everyone and just kind of praying his prayer. And you do realize his prayer is all about himself. Five times he says the word I. But even before that, you just kind of have this arrogant posture. But again, we're talking about a man who, like, theoretically loves God. But then you have the tax collector, and his prayer is so short, and the explanation of his posture is so much longer. He came in. He stood off at a distance. He hung his head. He beat his breast. He couldn't even lift his eyes to heaven. And he, and he prayed something really simple. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. What caused him this anguish? Well, I want us to see it. I, I think that what the, the tax collector saw is what we're all actually meant to see. This is what God wants us to see when we come to him. Exodus 24 Verse 17 says this, Moses is telling us that when they were in the wilderness, the people of Israel, they looked, and in verse 14, they saw this. Uh, 24, 17, I'm sorry. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on top of the mountain in sight of the people. The, the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire. So, so what did the tax collector see? In some sense, he saw, he saw this, the glory of the Lord, as this consuming thing. And he hung his head and he beat his breast. And it's the same thing that Isaiah saw in Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 5, when Isaiah was ushered into the heavens and he got to experience and witness and see this thing. And it says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. What is the tax collector seeing? He's seeing the glory of God. He's seeing the holiness of God. And he knows that he can't even look up to witness this. All he can say is, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And it's the same thing that David confesses. In Psalm 119, 120, he says, My flesh trembles for fear of you. I am afraid of your judgments. David knew that it was no small thing to come before God. That even David, knowing who he was, in, and, and just read the Psalms. I mean, you can see what David actually thought of himself in light of God. Yes, there's a, there's a lot of confession and repentance, but throughout the Psalms, you see a man who is fully convinced that God loves him, that he is his salvation, and yet David, even David says, when I come before the Lord, my flesh quakes because I know the judgment of God. 
And what is that judgment? A standard in which I cannot live or fulfill on my own. And so here's the tax collector. What did he see? What caused this anguish in him? The holiness of God. God's holiness. When he walked into that place, he realized the only thing that he had to offer, unlike the Pharisee, the only thing that he had to offer was his sin. It's all he had to give. It's the only thing that he had known his whole life, really, was sin. And so he came into this place, and all he had for this holy, glorious, majestic God was sin. And he knew in that moment, you can see it in the structure of his prayer. It's, it's, a, it's the perfect prayer. It's the perfect sinner's prayer. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's the only thing he knew. It's the only thing he could utter. As he couldn't even lift his eyes to the heavens, he just said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Here's humility. Do you want to know what humility is? Uh, I love the English Standard Version of the Bible. At almost every turn, I agree with everything. But because I myself am a Greek scholar, I disagree on one thing. When you read this section in the original language, I, I think, I, I'm being serious, I think there's something really important that we miss when we don't translate it the way I think it's meant to be translated. So right before the word sinner, there's a definite article. You, you know what a definite article is, right? The. What he actually says when he walks into this place, and this is humility, God be merciful to me, the sinner. You see, the Pharisee comes into this place, and the only thing he sees is the sin of everyone around him. He looks around the room, he makes his judgment, and he finds that he is the most righteous person he's ever met. The tax collector comes in, and he hangs his head in anguish as if he's the only sinner he's ever known or met. Do you know what humility is? Humility is never losing sight of your own personal sinfulness. The ultimate act of pride is to forget that you yourself are the sinner and that you are the one who needs the Savior. But I don't want us to misunderstand something. I think this is kind of what our culture is. I don't know. Maybe it's, I don't know. I'm 33 going on 34 years old, so that's who I am. I have basically this down. The older people can tell me if I'm wrong. But our culture right now uniquely has this ability to see the bad or the evil and then exalt the underdog. Yeah? Right? I think sometimes it's kind of like social justice, a social justice type of thing. We, we reject the evil and we elevate the underdog. Well, here's what I don't want us to misunderstand. This tax collector is not an admirable character. He is a, he is a bad man. He is a Jew that has defected to the Roman government and he steals from the, from the people of Israel. This is not a good man who has done good things. And so we're not supposed to admire this tax collector any more than we're supposed to despise this Pharisee. 
I want us to see that. If we walk away from this text accidentally being self-righteous, then we've missed the point. The point is this. It's not really about the Pharisee and the tax collector. As if you're supposed to look into this text, or I'm supposed to look into this text, and I'm saying, ah, the Pharisee is awful and the tax collector is wonderful. This is the takeaway. We are the sinner. Whether we're the Pharisee, whether we're the tax collector, we're the sinner. What is Jesus' point here? We need a Savior. Can you imagine? This is why reading the Bible, this side of the cross, is so wonderful. Can you imagine the irony? Like, think about it. Verse 14, the irony of this. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified. Can you imagine what... and? To be honest, we don't know who he's really talking to, but we can assume because of what comes before that the Pharisees are still there, and he's actually addressing Pharisees with this parable. But can you imagine the irony that Jesus is the one who says, I tell you this, this man went down justified. And they're like, who does he think he is? And we're over here reading like, we know who he is. (laughs) We know what he's going to do. Now imagine the irony if we miss that. say the right things, even pray the right prayers, and miss the fact that we are in great need of what God has to offer through Jesus. This parable is a warning against rejecting the freeness of Christ's righteousness for the illusion that we will ever be righteous on our own. Friend, don't see of him to save us understood that really outside of Paul in the New Testament. Nobody understood this more than David. And I want to end with his words. And I want his words, his prayer, his prayer, if you are a believer, to be the prayer of your heart. I want this to be the prayer of my heart. I want this to be the thing that motivates me and moves me as I leave this place today. Psalm 139, 23 and 24 Search me, O God, and know my heart. (laughs) Expose me, God. Expose me. Take it all. Lay it all out on the table. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. Know everything about me. Know everything that I think. Know every false notion that I have in my mind and my heart. Try me, O God. Search my heart. Know me. And then this, this, and see if there be any grievous way in me. And friend, there will be. And then we pray this, and lead me in the way everlasting. Let's pray. Well, Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for our time together. We do pray that you would work these truths into our hearts, that you would make us less like ourselves that you would make us like Christ, that you would do the work in us that, Father, we may think is not even possible. 
But Father, would you encourage our hearts today, if we have placed our faith in you, if we have confessed our sin and and hoped in Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection, Father, would you encourage our hearts in knowing that when we stand before you, it will not be our successes, nor will it be our failures. It will only be that Christ has died for us, that he alone is righteous, that we are justified because of his work. Oh, Father, would you let that encourage our hearts today? And would you, Lord, just give us the desire to let that be ever more true as we live the days of our life. And Father, we pray for our unbelieving friends who are here today. Would you be kind to them and merciful and gracious to them and give them eyes to see and ears to hear the truth of the gospel that though we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And it's in his name that we pray these things. Amen.